Good day, nerds. This is Megan coming at you with another Cantina conversation. Today, I'm talking to Robert Hoffler. We're talking about his recent release, The Way They Were, how epic battles and bruised egos brought a classic Hollywood love story to the screen. Those of you from the older generations or um, even people who are have followed cinematic history and love the classics will recognize that title. Um, so it's basically about a movie called The Way We Were, starring Barbara Streisand and Robert Redford. Um, it was very, very much a hot, hot movie at the time. And they basically, his book goes on, like, behind-the-scenes commentary and all the juicy drama that happened. And this a conversation, um, I just really appreciated it because I was not familiar at all with this movie or um, with much of what was going on at the time. So I learned a lot in how political tensions, the people involved in both political and the entertainment industry uh, were involved with the making of this movie and all the back and forth about it. But anyway, I'll let you guys um, listen to the interview and you'll know what I'm talking about. Here is Robert Hoffler. All right, today we've got Robert Hoffler. We're talking about the way they were how epic battles and bruised egos brought a classic Hollywood love story to the screen. Thank you, Robert, for taking the the time to meet with us today. The book is out now. It's available for everyone. Thank you so much. This is, um, I am a few, I think I'm a generation or two behind your intended audience. So this is kind of interesting, but also, yeah, I appreciate, you know, the opportunity to kind of learn some things today. (laughs) Well, you know, when I was uh, in college, which was quite a while ago. In fact, when I first saw uh, The Way We Were, I was in college and I remember it because it was Christmas Eve and I was going to NYU and it was the first time I was away from my family for for Christmas because my family was back in Iowa. But at that time, I was uh, in the cinema studies department at NYU and I loved old movies. So, you know, I would go off to the Museum of Modern Art and watch movies from the 30s and 40s all the time. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I think I do um, enjoy them now, but I, yeah, I can't think of like a movie that I've seen recently that was not made in like the past decade, unless it's just like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I was born in 87, just to like clarify that. And I remember when I was asking my parents about, because they were born in the 50s, I remember I was asking my parents about, um, you know, if they remember the movie, uh, the way we were and like what they thought of it or what, what they remember about like the, the hype around it at the time and things like that. And, and they just said, yeah, you know, I just remember it was a big deal because of the, the people that were leading it. And so I was like, okay, that's, that makes sense. It gives me like a little better of idea, I guess, of like, even though I've, you know, I've never seen the movie. I've, um, I'm very, I mean, I'm familiar with Streisand and, and Bradford, but it's really hard not to be because they're like icons, you know, in the industry. Um, so I was glad that I had some familiarity with those, but yeah, I just, I asked my parents, like, cause I was just curious as to how, you know, I think the older I get and the more like I learn about like history and, and how entertainment is like, so tied to like current events and stuff like that. It's, it's interesting to also for, for opportunities like this to go back and connect those dots too. um, you know. Well, one thing that's lost today about the movie and was why it was a controversial movie when it was released, it, it was really the first movie uh, to deal with the blacklist. And that was Joe McCarthy 
And uh, all of these people couldn't work in Hollywood because they were suspected of being communist. And why that was so difficult to release a movie in 1973 is that many of those people who enforced the blacklist were still working in Hollywood. Mm. Uh, so they didn't want to offend them. And then you have to remember the president of the United States at the time was Richard Nixon, who in 1948 and 49, which is the period of the way we were, 1947, he sat on the House on American Activities. So Columbia Pictures did not want to alienate the president of the United States. And also at that time, I believe he still was governor or had been governor, was Ronald Reagan. And Ronald Reagan was another one who was a very friendly witness and was trying to, you know, oust out suspected communists uh, within Hollywood. So here you had, you know, the governor, you had the president. So it was a very controversial movie at the time. Yeah, it's, and that's so crazy to me how, I don't know, like just to hear about it, um, about how like so much was at stake and because of all of those, you know, like uh, eggshells that they kind of had to walk on and, and it would just, that circle was just so far reaching that it wasn't just the entertainment industries. Like it was like political, but that was because um, Arthur Lawrence was trying to, you know, he was trying to in- integrate that in the big picture of his story that he was trying to tell. And um, looking back at it now or learning about it now, I think that that's so, it's so crazy. It's like, it, it makes it all the more like juicier, you know, it makes it like, like the, like it adds to the drama and the sensationalism, like, surrounding the whole um movie process but oh real quick can you give like a a little synopsis of um the book that you wrote so that you know listeners can kind of follow along with the conversation the gist of the context that we're speaking well the she plays a communist in 1937 on a college campus and she's railing against the civil war in spain and particularly the fascist uh general franco And then uh, Robert Redford is just the golden boy jock who she falls in love with. She has a crush on him. She's Jewish. He's Gentile. And then they meet years later during World War II and they fall in love and they get married. And then they go to Hollywood where he's a screenwriter. And what was cut out of the movie is that the reason that they break up is because one of her old college comrades has informed on her to the House on Un-American Activities and has told them that she's an ex-communist. And Hubble tells Katie, Redford tells Streisand, I can't have a communist for a wife. And she says, well, I'll divorce you, but stay with me until the baby comes. Well, that whole thing about that was all cut out of the movie. Uh, and now you think they break up because Hubble had a one night affair with Carol Ann, who was Lois Childs in the movie. And Streisand Katie finds out about it. And then she says, stay with me until the baby is born. But anyway, that was one of the controversies I uncovered for this book. I had I had heard that an hour of the movie had been cut out of it, most of it having to do with the blacklist. Uh, but what I didn't know is that there were two scenes that Streisand to this day wants put back in the movie. And one of them is the real reason that they break up. And it's not because, as Streisand told me, because he stooped 
you know, a girl one night. It was because she was exposed as being a communist and he couldn't continue working in Hollywood. And that's the reason they they break up. And she's always tried to get that scene put back in the movie. And she's still trying to this day to have a re-release of the movie with that scene put back in. Yeah, that's so fascinating. And I think, I guess, like, I only have my current frame of reference to to compare it to because I'm, I, I, you know, I... I follow entertainment kind of loosely. I mean, I go to see, you know, I follow like the, the movies that come out and, and depending on um, actors and actresses, I, I follow along with the trends and stuff like that. And um, I'm not, but I'm not necessarily like a cinephile or like, um, you know, huge film buff per se. Um, so I just like kind of think about how, how that would play out today. Like if the entertainment industry would, bend so far to like political drama like that or or you know do they don't want to rub any anybody the wrong way but i i think i don't know i guess it's like kind of explore your thoughts on it like if like do you think it would how how differently would it play today if that same kind of like drama was surrounding it do you think it wouldn't even be an issue at all because you know hollywood just isn't you know, they're not that they don't bend that easily. Like, what are your well, thoughts? I think you have a movie that that came out last year called She Said, and it was about you know these journalists who uncovered uh, Harvey Weinstein and his you know sexual abuse of these actors in uh, uh, Hollywood. I don't think that uh, is what distinguishes the movie. Uh, I think Hollywood has become more and more prone to handle politics, although it's not always good box office. I have to say the thing that makes the movie singular, in my opinion, is that it's one of the few that takes, um, you were talking about, you were you were uh, speaking to your parents about the movie, and I was curious what, if your mother and father had different opinions of the movie, because I interviewed the editor of the movie, John Burnett, who's now in his 90s. And he told me one of the most interesting things about the movie. He said that whenever he met people, he would tell them all the movies he'd edited. And men would always say, I don't like the way we were, but it's my (laughs) wife's favorite movie. And I know why that is, because the movie is singular in that it is about an average looking woman landing the gorgeous hunk. Now, in the movies, we're used to seeing that in the reverse. You know, it's Humphrey Bogart, you know, gets Lauren Bacall, or uh, it's uh, Spencer Tracy gets Catherine Hepburn, or Jimmy Stewart gets Kim Novak. And even now, it's like the Ben Stiller movies. Uh, (laughs) uh, Larry David on Curb Your Enthusiasm. And of course, all the Woody Allen movies, you know, and you're sitting there looking and here's Woody Allen with Diane Keaton, Meryl Hemingway, Mia Farrell, these absolutely beautiful women. And we're used to it because we always have this idea that the men deserve it because they're so intelligent. They're so charming. Uh, they're so successful. They have a lot of money. But when it comes to women turning that kind of cliche on its head, people still get very upset. And when I was doing research on the book, I couldn't find many other examples of that. I think Dirty Dancing, probably with Jennifer Grey and Patrick Swayze, 
And there was Elena Dunham in Girls who had one weekend that she spent with Patrick Swayze. And of course, Girls and uh, Dirty Dancing are in the vein of the way we were because they are Jewish women who fall in love with the gorgeous Gentile man. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's that's very and and that rubs some people. But I, I think even to this day, there was a question I was asked once um, about what if they did a remake of the movie, and I just said I don't think there's anyone to play the Streisand part. Yeah, really? Because I was curious I about that is. too. Oh, because I I don't know. It kind of reminds me of like. And this is probably like a cliche example, but it reminded me of of how like a star is born. I know Streisand did one of those versions. And yes. then for today's today's audiences remake, they did um, Lady Gaga. Now, I never saw any of the original ones, but yes. it seemed like it, you know, that did a, a decent job of kind of like what you're alluding to is like an average looking because with Lady Gaga, like, yeah, she's good looking, but like without makeup, she can look very average. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, with Bradley Cooper, it's like he's been a dreamboat for like how many years, you know, even though in in that movie, he's also he's like purposely like washed up looking. Um, I think that's really interesting that you can't even like nobody steps up to Streisand, huh? <laughs> no, I really think her career is quite uh, singular. And I actually think the way we were is one of the last kind of good performances she gave. Mm. I mean, I don't worship at the altar of any of these stars. But I think her iconography in Hollywood is quite unique. And I don't think anyone has come along to quite fill those those shoes. Mm-hmm. I can see where you're coming from with that. You know, she she's an icon for a reason. And that I could see that being like why it's an interesting pairing with them. And like they were just reading your book, I thought it was so interesting. Um how Robert Redford had to be like begged, like just constantly they, they only wanted him. And um, like, he just kept turning it down. Like he just wasn't interested at all. He wasn't interested at all, but you have to also realize the movie was rewritten quite a bit for Mm -hmm. him that what Arthur Lawrence wrote was, I mean, the Katie character is pretty much as he wrote it, but the Hubble character really was just a Ken doll. Mm. And he didn't want, Redford did not want to play a Ken doll. And you have to look at his career. He really, before the movies, he hit it quite big on Broadway in fluffy Neil Simon uh, comedies where all it really required of him was good looks and being charming and comic talent, which is a lot. But he never, when it came to the movies, he was always much more serious. And I don't think that he wanted to repeat that. And so he just didn't want to do this kind of fluffy romantic, com- not comedy, but just this romantic fluff. Also, you have to remember at that time, a Barbara Streisand movie was a Barbara Streisand movie. No one remembered her leading man. And he thought <laughs> that she would dominate, she would direct the movie. And also, this was very important, she'd never been tested as a dramatic actress. Mm. And that was one of the reasons that they brought Sidney Pollock on, because Sidney Pollock had been an acting coach earlier in his career. And it was Sidney Pollock 
who had a very close relationship with Robert Redford, who talked Redford into it. But basically, as Redford put it to me in an interview, I trusted that Sidney Pollack would get the, sh the script into the shape that I wanted it. And I trusted him. And they brought on two other writers, and more than that, two major writers who really rewrote mainly the Hubble stuff. And then what never worked in the movie, another thing that the editor told me was they cut an hour out, most of it having to do with the Hollywood blacklist. And he said, what we found, number one, they had a three-hour movie and they had to, and Ray Stark, the producer, wanted a two-hour movie. He said, what we realized is that the only important thing was not the blacklist, but simply that Katie have a cause. In the 30s, it was Franco. In the 40s, it was the blacklist. In the 50s, it was ban the bomb. And it didn't really make any difference what her cause was. And that the whole hour on the blacklist became more about the people in the blacklist mm -hmm. than it was about Katie. And, you know, a number of the characters who are almost not in the movie anymore were based on real people like the Patrick uh, O'Neill character. Bissinger, the director, is based on the real director, John Huston. Uh, there was an agent character that was based on Salka Virtal, who was a confidant of Greta Garbo. And then there was another agent in the movie who was based on Meta Rosenberg, who was a communist, who then turned and gave names and named mm. communists to Hewitt. And she was Rob, one of Robert Redford's first agents. And that was one of the questions that I asked Redford did you realize when you were making it that your old agent was one of the characters and he would not answer the question? The other question he would not answer was after their second love scene, he's supposed to say it'll be better this time because you remember in their first love scene, he falls asleep on top of her and she says, Hubble, you know, it's Katie. Well, after their second love scene, he was supposed to say it'll be better this time, but he refused to say it. And he also refused to tell me why he why? would say it. <laughs> oh, my gosh. But that is so funny because I think in the book you said that it was because, you know, or I don't know if it was um, it's just what you inferred or you talked to other people, but he didn't want to say it because he he refused to, like, even be seen that way kind of thing. Uh, well, that's my conjecture. I mean, you can conjecture why wouldn't he want to say it'll be better this time. Yeah. And it was interesting because there were so many memos back and forth between the producer, Ray Stark, and the director, Sidney Pollack. And there must have been there. There were literally dozens of memos on saying this line, and how important that um, Ray Stark thought it was. And Arthur Lawrence wrote the line and he wanted it to fit there. And he thought that it made Hubble more human. It made him chivalrous that he realized that he had mistreated her the first time around. You know, yeah. there was another line that Redford crossed out of the script. And at the very end of the movie, when they meet in 1952, after they haven't seen each other for years, and they meet in front of the Plaza Hotel, and then Katie, for the last time, you know, takes her red fingernails and pushes his bangs off his forehead, he was supposed to say the word gray, as in I have gray hair. But that was 
cut out of the script also. <laughs> so if Redford isn't bad in bed, he's also not going to grow red. <laughs> but that's my speculation. Yeah, I would say that's a fair that's a fair speculation. That's a fair take on it because, and I just think it's funny because if he wanted different types of roles that maybe go a little bit, you know, a little bit more complicated, like not surface level, you know, pretty boy roles, you would think that maybe he wouldn't, you know, he would be a little more open-minded to uh Well, you think he'd be more open-minded about it. But also another thing is that Sidney Pollack in interviews was asked about, if you see the movies, I mean, Barbara Streisand has ridiculously long fingernails. Now, it mm. kind of maybe makes sense in during the war that she did. But when she's a communist waitress and she has long fingernails, it's ridiculous. And also, if you look at the way Redford, even to this day, has kind of shaggy hair. You know, he's every once in a while, you have these stars who have a look and then they just don't want to change it regardless you know, time goes by, styles change. And here he is, you know, he's supposed to be like, you know, some officer in the Navy. And he has this kind of shaggy 1972 hair. <laughs> and basically, Pollock was asked about it. And he says, well, there's only so far you can take these things. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, those little details that the razor sharp, like the people who are are so meticulous in their watching and analyzing film who like, the eagle eye fans, they notice those things. And I, I, I can, I can see how it does take, take away from that. Like, well, no, realistically, yeah, like naturally this would happen or naturally this is how he would look because it feeds mm-hmm. off of the, t- the character and the changes that he's made and the life that he's living now. And yeah, little things like that. But, um, I think now maybe like the public opinion is a little more, uh, unforgiving so so maybe you know maybe that's why in hindsight we're like yeah okay like (laughs) like why wouldn't you Well, also i think one of the reasons that the movie has endured and it was popular at the time is that they were two very different stars and yet there seemed to be a kind of friction there that was very attractive and i think that that chemistry still comes through I think one of the things at the time it was released, it was very much about a Jewish Gentile romance. I think today we're probably not as sensitive about that. And today, because you have to remember then, I mean, not that that's an interracial relationship, but you didn't have interracial relationships in the movies very, very much. And now they're kind of com- commonplace. And the whole Jewish Gentile thing is much, much more common in the movies than it was at that time. But I think what continues to work about the movie is that it is about one person in a relationship who is giving more, trying to keep it working, uh, caring more, and actually loving more. And the other person in this case, the Hubble, the Redford character, is kind of carried along for the ride. And I think most of us have been in those kinds of relationships where you've loved more than the other person and you never kind of get over those relationships. And I think that's one of the reasons that the movie really endures and and works. Yeah, it's so relatable. You're absolutely right where, you know, at some point or another, 
I feel like, I mean, I, even though I feel it's necessary, like everyone gets their heart broken, right. You know, at least once. And I think just for growth in general, it's not always a bad thing, but yeah, it's like, it's, it's just a little more heartbreaking when, when it seems one-sided, you know, like one person is taking action and the other person is, um, like you said, yeah. And, and I think that was one of the reasons that I don't think a sequel would ever have worked for the movie. Although Streisand to this day says she really regrets it because she feels that the two people really loved each other. And certainly there have been some very successful relationships that have not been equal relationships. And that brings me around, of course, to the author of the piece, Arthur Lawrence. I asked him in about 2002 if he was really writing about himself. He was mm-hmm. Jewish. And his boyfriend of 40 years, Tom Hatcher, who was a blonde, gorgeous Gentile. And Arthur Lawrence didn't say no. He says, well, I was writing about myself when I was in college because he was a communist in college. And I was writing about being blacklisted during, you know, when I was a screenwriter in Hollywood. But I think although the part of Hubble was rewritten so much by other writers, uh, but I do think that Arthur Lawrence was inspired by his own relationship with this gorgeous Gentile man. And he was constantly working to keep the relationship going. I mean, Tom Hatcher was not a successful off, uh, uh, actor, but Arthur Lawrence put him into two plays that he wrote. Uh, he didn't have a job. He made Tom Hatcher manager of Arthur Lawrence Enterprises. You know, he when that didn't work out, he bought a bunch of houses. And then Tom Hatcher, who had a degree in architecture from Oklahoma State, renovated those houses and actually became very wealthy. But you can see there's one person, Arthur Lawrence, who's doing everything to keep the other person going. And they had a very successful relationship. They were together for 52 years. But I I think that relationship really inspired the way we were. It's interesting because when Redford rejected it, Streisand at that time was dating Warren Beatty and she wanted to have Warren Beatty play the Hubble character. Now the Hubble character was always written as a blonde, but of course if Warren Beatty would have played the part, we might be talking about Arthur Lawrence's relationship with Farley Granger. Mm. Now Farley Granger is a movie star who met Arthur Lawrence. Arthur Lawrence had written the screenplay to Alfred Hitchcock's movie Rope. And Farley Granger was the star of Rope. And that started a five-year relationship in Hollywood, which was the same period of the way we were. And uh, if Warren Beatty would have played the role, maybe I would have written more about, you know, Farley Granger having been the prototype for Hubble. Yeah. Yeah. And and so kind of like, I want to dig a little bit deeper. So I know like with your background, you've, you've, this is not your first like behind the scenes, you know, storytelling. Um, so kind of like what, how do you tackle those types of projects? Do you, do you decide, Oh, there's something here. And then like you start researching and you gather and you, you know, you gather your contacts and look into your network, all that stuff. Or is it kind of like over time, just all of a sudden you're like, Oh, look at, like all of this information I've collected and maybe I could do something with this type of well, thing. I'm just really curious. Cause like, I think it's just like kind of fascinating. Cause I imagine your network, like, cause you're like a theater critic too, right? That's, that's yes. like part, part of your professional career. And like, I just think it's fascinating. I'm interested to see like how 
that type of, um, you know, background might have well, might have I was played a, into your projects now. I, I was an entertain before I was a theater critic, I was an entertainment editor at Live Magazine and Us and Variety. So I knew a lot of people in the entertainment business. It, it depends on the book you're doing when you're doing a biography. And this book, the way they were, is not really a biography. But there was a, a lot about Arthur Lawrence and uh, it's interesting because the book has gotten very good reviews, but it's gotten <laughs> some very mixed reviews <laughs> from non-professional critics on Amazon.com. Mm. And they don't like the Arthur Lawrence stuff. But the fact of the matter is, is that it's Arthur Lawrence's story. He wrote it and he wrote it about himself. But of course, he changed the sex. He, you know, he's a man and he made, you know, Katie a woman. But I knew that there was an Arthur Lawrence um, archives at the Library of Congress. And I also knew that Sidney Pollack, the director, had archives at the Academy Library in Beverly Hills. And there was also the producer, Ray Stark, had his own archives. And I was just hoping when I got the book deal that these men had kept all of these memos and letters and all of this stuff. And luckily they did. And then you supplement that with going to the library and looking at all the interviews that Sidney Pollack and Redford and Streisand gave over the years and Arthur Lawrence. And then uh, you try to interview as many people as you can. I also did a book called Money, Murder and Dominic Dunn. And Dominic Dunn was a major crime reporter, covered the OJ trial, the Menendez brothers, all of that. And I knew that his archives were at the University of Austin, Texas. And so I went there and went through all of his papers. And he, again, was this real kind of rat pack who kept everything, every letter he ever wrote or received, he kept. So that's how you do a lot of it. Otherwise, if they people don't leave a paper trail, then you have to interview a lot of people. Mm -hmm. I've always said one thing. I will never do a book, a biography of someone who is still living. <laughs> but I also don't want to do a biography of someone who's been dead for a long time. <laughs> yeah, maybe you don't write one and or you collect all your information and then wait to release it or publish it until afterwards. Because, you know, yeah, that's so interesting because you were able to um, interview both of them. And then you were also inter able to interview uh arthur lawrence too can you like tell me about about that like what were there any well, like really fascinating things that you learned or like surprising things that you learned well i saw i think i said this that i saw the movie for the first time in 1973 and then about 20 years later i had the opportunity to interview Sidney pollock and mm. i had i had there had always been these stories that there was an hour cut out of the movie and so I asked him, I said, what about this hour that's been cut out of the movie? Is there going to be a director's cut? And he said, absolutely not. <laughs> he said, the the scenes that we cut out didn't work. Uh, they were the blacklist. And then it was a few years later, about 2002, I was a theater reporter at Variety, and I knew Arthur Lawrence. He liked to be interviewed. And I asked him, you know, there had been stories around Broadway that the way we were was really a story about two men, Arthur Lawrence and Tom Adger. And so I asked him about that. Uh, and there are things that, 
you know, I would love to speak to both of those men because there were kind of, I was kind of naive at the time and I asked them basic questions. But now that I've done the book, yeah. there are some other questions that I'd like to ask him. Right. Both, yeah. It's always, it's always like after the fact, really like, oh man. Like, <laughs> well, I've learned so much more. I mean, as I said, at that time, I didn't realize that Streisand was so insistent that two scenes be put back in, in the movie. I mean, there was a whole hour cut out of it. It seemed odd to me that Pollock didn't indulge her and put these two scenes in because they're only about three or four minutes. Yeah, that's crazy. Well, what do you think? Would you, if that extra hour were added into it, do you think, I mean, obviously there's no way of knowing because it hasn't been released. Nobody's seen the footage, but like what kind of movie would have well, I, I've certainly read what those scenes were, and I have. You can see the. There was a a preview. There were two previews in San Francisco about a month before the movie was released in fall of 1973. And on Friday night, the movie was two hours and eleven minutes, and they did not have a successful screening. The audience seemed not to like it. They seemed to be bored. And then Sidney Pollack cut out eleven minutes. And then on Saturday night, they screened it again in San Francisco and they had a big hit. Hmm. So that was the, you know, he wanted it. Now it seemed, uh, it's always seemed odd to me what I'd like to ask him. Well, didn't you have a third screening and just put a little bit of it back in that Barbara wanted there? But I never got to ask him that, that question, but they never had a third screening with, you know, two hours and four minutes. I think the blacklist material doesn't work because Pollock said at one time that the movie bothered him. And I'm thinking he was envisioning the three hour version because now it's not true because so much of the blacklist was cut out, but it was Yentaism to the extreme. That is, it was people talking about a problem and gossiping a problem without really being a affected by it. And a problem with the Katie character when you get to Hollywood is she's not a major player. Back in 1947, there were John Huston, Humphrey Bogart, Lauren Bacall, Gene Kelly, uh, Danny Kaye, a number of other big liberal Hollywood types went to Washington, D.C. to protest the House on Un-American Activities. And it was a political disaster. And they all had to come back to Hollywood with their mink coats dragging Mm. between their legs because they had been embarrassed. And that was the turn that then when they came back, the the blacklist was on. Katie in the movie isn't at the level of a Humphrey Bogart or a John Huston. She's just this wife of a, you know, a a second-rate screenwriter or a first-time screenwriter in Hollywood. So she's in all of these scenes. She's not a major participant. She's just always there offering her comments. And when you get rid of all of that, like John Burnett, the editor, told me, when we got rid of that, we realized that the movie was becoming about, though it wasn't about Hubble and Katie anymore. It was about this these agents and these directors and everyone else. And, and Katie just always kind of just happened to be there, you know, commenting and giving them advice. And so when you got rid of all these scenes and there were, you know, a dozen scenes that I read, uh, 
But if you want to see the 11 minutes that was cut out, you should buy the DVD, the 25th anniversary Mm. DVD of The Way We Were. And there is a documentary that is a special feature called Looking Back. And you can see the 11 minutes that they cut out. Okay, yeah, maybe I'll look into that because I'm wondering how, like, because I was thinking, I was like, oh, maybe I should go watch the movie. But that's so interesting. I think that's a really good point where if if Katie was like more more of a big player, more of a big name, more on the powers that be on their radar, so yeah. to speak, then that kind of conflict would be so much more impactful. Like, you know. Well, there's a, there's a scene in the movie Murray Hamilton. He was the evil mayor in uh, Jaws. Well, in the way we were, he only has one scene now, but he's a he's a liberal screenwriter and he gives a big speech at the Beverly Hills Hotel and rails against the blacklist. And Katie is just there. She's just kind of in the audience. And then later on, he uh, this screenwriter, it's kind of based on Dalton Trumbo, who continued after he was in jail for being blacklisted. He uh wrote under pseudonyms and actually won two Academy Awards, one for the brave one and another one for Roman Holiday, but he wrote them under pseudonyms. There's a scene where that screen Murray Hamilton is trying to get Robert Redford to be his front to sell scripts to Hollywood. Well, what's Katie doing there? She's just along for the ride. You know, basically that's kind of a scene that would have played out between the two screenwriters why would Hubble have brought his wife along for something like that? I mean, there was all sorts of stuff like that. Oh, yeah, that's a good point then. See, man, you know, I think like if I went down the rabbit hole, I would <laughs> be like so fascinated by like every little thing that I learned and 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 better connect the dots because um, I, I have like a surface level um, idea and familiarity with with the political drama from, from past because it's like right now I feel like the way you know, current events are, there's just like so much to keep track of. And I'm more focused on that. But it's also interesting to see like, how, how, you know, events that happen in the past, not just politically, but even like, stuff like this in the entertainment industry, and how they kind of cross over, like how things like that led up to where we are today, you know, and, and then how mo- the entertainment industry has evolved. And, um and how you said, like, you know, they, they don't bend as much anymore, but then it's also like they kind of understand what they're doing if they if they do it how how they want to anyway. It's interesting because I I, I think the movie might be stronger. I'm not sure with the scene where Hubble tells her, you know, that Frankie McVeigh, that's her com her communist comrade, comrade played by James Woods you know, informed on you. And she says, well, we'll get a divorce. Streisand feels that the way the movie is edited now, and this is her word, stutt, that the reason that they divorce is because he stutt Carol Ann one night. I don't quite agree with that. I think that what is obvious from the movie now is that the marriage is on the rocks because Hubble is angry that Katie has gone back to her political commitment and has made her political commitments stronger than her desire to keep their marriage going. And that is why he sleeps with Carol Ann, because Mm. he feels the marriage is already over. And 
So I don't think it's like because he stooped her, as Streisand <laughs> said. The other scene that Streisand one put back in, if you know the movie, there's a very uh, emotional scene where Hubble is with J.J., uh, on a sailboat and they talk about the best year ever and then JJ says ah but to lose someone like Katie that would really be horrible there was a parallel scene with that where Streisand Katie is very pregnant and she's driving across the UCLA campus and she sees a young co-ed who reminds of herself when she was on college campus and the young co-ed is speaking out against HUAC and the blackness and it reminds her of herself and that i think the scene is important because it drives home the point that she feels katie feels she made a mistake marrying hubble Mm. it's like the other line that streisand had to fight for and she was able to keep in the movie was at the very end of the movie when she says, give me a call. And Hubble says, what's your telephone number? And he says, we're in the book. It's David X. Cohen. And he says, what's the X for? And she said, it's the only one in the book. What that drives home is that Katie made a mistake falling in love with the vapid, gorgeous Gentile. She has gone back to her Jewish roots, just like she's gone back to her frizzy hair. Yeah, yeah. It's just like once you learn, look at the whole arc of it, it's... But yeah, I mean, I know this this movie ha- was like critically acclaimed and everything, but I think just knowing all that, like, well, learning it now, and then having read the book, <laughs> having read your book, yeah. and it's like, oh, like, I could see how how knowing all that background you know, and knowing the non-public side of it? Because, mm-hmm. I mean, I know, can you say anything? Like, was there any of this drama known at the time? Or was it kind of just like slowly oh, well, leaked later? It, or it, it was very well known that a lot of writers had been brought on because okay. writers, you know, as famous as Dalton Trumbo and Francis Ford Coppola had been brought on to rewrite the script. So that was very, very well known. And everyone was watching it because it was Streisand and Redford. And basically, Streisand was known for pushing her leading man out of the way and often having affairs with them and then pushing them out of the way and also <laughs> directing her, her movies. You know, it was not critically acclaimed, though, when it came out. What was interesting to me, and I did write about this, is that um, two of the most famous film critics in the United States at that time were Pauline Kael at the New Yorker and Judith Christ at New York. And they both liked the movie. And it was very interesting to me that they both used the word, the movie is enjoyable. And I think here were these two middle-aged women who at that point in their careers, they were very established, very respected, were so sick of seeing all these average looking Joes land the babe that they found it enjoyable that, you know, Barbara Streisand was able to, you know, stub Robert Redford. <laughs> and, but the male critics didn't like that. I mean, the male critics, and even when I've done interviews for this, the, the gender divide between men and women on the movie is just unbelievable that I've had so many. And, you know, at the time that the movie was done, it was just like, oh, it's about an ugly duckling. <laughs> <laughs> and I did some podcast for some, it, this one guy asked me, but there's a point in the movie where Hubble says, you know, you're beautiful, Katie. 
how are we supposed to take that line? She's ugly. <laughs> and I said, no, we're supposed to see that he sees her as being beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> Oh man, yeah. I don't. I'll because I, I will. When I was like reading and stuff and looking into it, um, I you know I did a lot of googling and and all that, and I watched some of the trailers and I watched some clips from it. So it was like so I had like a general idea. Um, but that is so funny. Well, I'm kind of going back to that. I mean, my parents. When I it was a very short conversation. I think I just asked like just kind of getting it like kind of trying to uh, gauge like how how big of a deal it was or what they remember from that you know time period when it was in the you know when it was up and coming and released and all that. And I don't know if they were I don't know if they were interested in the movie at all because they just they were just like oh yeah I remember it was just. It was a big deal because of who was in it. And that's kind of well, like what I got. <laughs> they, they were arguably the two biggest stars at that time. I think there was Warren Beatty and Paul Newman who might have been, and maybe Jane Fonda, you know, mm-hmm. those were kind of it, but that these two came together. Uh, that was it. And the other thing that I think is just undeniable about the movie is that the theme song, the theme song the following year became the number one single. And, you know, it was very controversial. Everyone involved with the movie, including Streisand and Sidney Pollack, didn't know if she should sing the title song. They thought mm-hmm. it conflicted with her character. And Streisand, before that, had made a film for Ray Stark, The Owl and the Pussycat. And he wanted her to sing the title song. And she said, have you ever heard of any singing prostitutes? Which I thought was kind of funny since most of the Broadway (laughs) musicals in the 60s and 70s were about singing prostitutes from Sweet Charity to Chicago and zillions of others. But anyway, she (laughs) refused to sing the title song for the album Pussycat because she thought it conflicted with her character. And that was also a consideration here. And Redford definitely did not want her to sing. He did not want to be the co-star of a Barbara Streisand musical. Mm. It, 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 but it's just for the soundtrack, right? She, she doesn't sing in the movie, or does she? He doesn't sing in the movie. Okay, okay. Why? I don't know. I wonder, like, Robert Redford, he's just like, why would it bother him so much that he does? he thought that that's what, what it would look like if she's not singing in the movie, if she's just singing, like, the title song? Because I think at that time, you know, he probably the first time he made a movie with Paul Newman, Paul Newman was the, was definitely the biggest male star in Hollywood when they did Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. So being co-starring with Paul Newman kind of elevated him. But to be the co-star in a Barbara Streisand movie where she sings is, you know, it wasn't it wasn't kind of. You know, what a guy cool. did. It was kind <laughs> of what these second rate leading men did. Okay. Okay. Like he like I guess I could kind of see that where he he you know he felt that he had moved past that point, you know. He definitely felt he had moved past that point. <laughs> and also, I mean, there were just lots of things. He didn't like the role. He thought she would end up directing the movie. He didn't think she was a dramatic actress. 
He, you know, she was going to sing in the middle of the movie. Uh, they turn it into a musical. Also, he hated Ray Stark. He hated the producer because they had worked together before. So there was almost nothing. And here he was. He was being offered, you know, the movie he did right after this was The Sting with Paul mm. Newman, which was a much bigger success than The Way We Were. I think, you know, The Way We Were was the fifth, grossing movie of the year. The big movie that year was The Exorcist and The Sting. Those were the two big movies of 1972. Mm. 1973. 1973. Yeah. I have seen The Exorcist, but it was a very long time ago. Probably like younger than... I think I was still a teenager. For I don't know why what compelled me. I think because I read the book. And so I wanted to see the movie. And I was just like, oh, okay. I don't know. I think like... I think that happens a lot with with books and movies that I'm not necessarily like wouldn't pick up off the shelf, but one interests me and the other mm-hmm. vice versa. So that's interesting, though. That gives me a good perspective on it. Also, Arthur Lawrence wrote the screenplay so that Hubble was essentially a supporting character. Mm-hmm. And Lawrence also wanted Robert Redford until Robert Redford started asking for all these changes. And it was when Redford came aboard and said, you've got to beef up the role and make it more interesting. That's when Arthur Lawrence was fired. And then late in the process, because Ray Stark didn't like the rushes and he didn't think the Katie character made sense, he brought Arthur Lawrence back to rewrite the Katie scenes. Meanwhile, you had other screenwriters rewriting (laughs) the Hubble That's what it sounds like such a hot mess. Like, how did that like it's just come a out? hot mess? And you know, how they kind of made it work. I, I think the movie has a very, I think that the Hollywood section is, is the weakest, but it has a very strong ending. And I think it's because so many, it, it's so good in the first half of the movie. My favorite scene is um, actually on Beekman Place, and FDR has just died. And then there with all of his, you know, hoity-toity friends on Beekman Place. And uh, Katie says, why did you bring me here? Why did you bring me here? You know, because they were making fun of FDR and Eleanor Roosevelt. And those were her heroes. And I really thought that that kind of resembled what Arthur Lawrence experienced on Broadway because he wrote the books for Gypsy and West Side Story. He was very respected on Broadway, but his boyfriend, Tom Hatcher, was just this kind of beautiful hunk. And uh, (laughs) I think in a way, Arthur Lawrence was writing about his relationship with Tom Hatcher because the Jewish intellectuals on Broadway were kind of making fun of the dumb, gorgeous Gentile, in a way, it's a reverse of what was happening on Beatbook Place in the movie, where it was, you know, the kind of polished Gentiles were making fun of this politically outre, you know, Jewish woman. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So just a couple of questions before we wrap up. I really like asking this question because I think it's interesting to to see. <laughs> I think I always find author's answers kind of, it's just fun. Um, so it's like a two-parter. So what were like your favorite parts to write? And then what were like the most challenging parts to write? Um, the most challenging parts or the most fun to write. I had a very great, I, I didn't know how to begin the book. 
And then so I just kind of started it with Streisand read this 125 page treatment. And I thought, oh, well, I'll come up with a better opening than that. And I never <laughs> did. And it was just that she said, I love it. <laughs> no, Katie is is me. And I just always kind of stuck with it. And then I thought, you know, most people who are going to be reading this book, the reason they're reading it is because they like Barbara Streisand movies or they like her music. And so why don't I just stick with that? And so I always did. But I always wanted to come up with kind of something else. Fault of the book. I mean, you didn't ask that question. Oh, no. <laughs> but, but for some reason, it's kind of sticking in my mind. Oh, <laughs> Arthur Lawrence always told people that he was blacklisted. I don't think he really was. And uh, he met Tom Hatcher in Hollywood in 1955. And at that time, Arthur Lawrence was staying at the Chateau Marmont along with Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward and Gore Vidal. And it was Gore Vidal who's told, who introduced him to Tom Hatcher. Arthur Lawrence might have stayed at the Chateau Marmont for a weekend on his own dime, but he was staying there for months. What was he doing in Hollywood? And I think he was at work on a, a screenplay of they were taking an MGM movie uh, and turning it into a musical with the Jerome Robbins, who directed West Side Story and a number of other broad Broadway shows. But I didn't really kind of get that all neatly done. But there was a number of things I found in the Library of Congress where Arthur Lawrence in his memoir memoirs had told many lies about the blacklist. And one of them was that he said he was blacklisted in 1948. And the only people who were blacklisted in 1948 were the Hollywood 10. Those are the only people who lost jobs. And actually, Arthur Lawrence ran into problems with the government much later, about 1952. And he got out of it by basically writing and uh, a loyalty oath to the United States. So there was no reason for him to be blacklisted. Mm. And he was never a communist. But I don't know, what were the really fun parts to, uh, you know, I, I suppose I really enjoyed Robert Redford's resistance to the whole project. <laughs> that he's just going like, no, I don't want to do it. And I really love the way in which Sidney Pollock would talk one way to Arthur Lawrence and, and Ray Stark in another way to Redford. Uh, and here was an example where he said to Redford, Katie doesn't see any farther than the nose on her face, where Hubble is the existentialist. He sees the much broader picture. But when he was talking to Lawrence, Lawrence said to him, what do you think this movie is about? And he says, it's about a woman who doesn't think she's pretty and a man who thinks he is only pretty. <laughs> that is something I guarantee you, Sidney Pollack never said to Robert Redford, because <laughs> that's why Robert Redford didn't want to play the role. Yeah. Oh, gosh, that's funny. Yeah, I bet that that made it much more fun just to Cause yeah, it's like Robert, it seems like he was very consistent in his like feedback or his like, you know, uh, his, his issues that he had with, it, and he was like speaking up. So yeah, it's like, I imagine while you're like gathering all your research and you're, and you're collecting all your materials and reading through everything, talking to people that I could totally see that that was 
that was fun. I could reading your your writing style, reading the book. I could tell you had fun too at, at certain points where you just like, all right, here we go. <laughs> well, you know, I don't think it's a great movie. I think it's a great story, <laughs> and I think that the story behind the movie is actually more interesting than the story itself. Although I think it's a perfectly fine movie. Um, but, you know, all the books I've written, I don't think that Dominic Dunn was a great crime reporter, but he led a very interesting life. And then another book I did was called Party Animals, and that was about Alan Carr. And to me, Alan Carr was this producer who had this roller coaster life. You know, he produced Grease, he produced La Caja Paul on Broadway, and then he also produced the worst Oscars ever with Snow White. <laughs> And so, you know, you know, are any of those people great artists? No, I don't even know if I could write a book about a great artist, because then it's all about what makes their art great. And that's very hard to do. And I'm more interested in kind of what makes these bizarre characters tick. One of my favorite movies of all times Tim Burton's movie Ed Wood and of course Ed Wood was one of the worst directors ever but I just love all the craziness that went on yeah and in a lot of my books I think they really are about people my books are at heart about people misbehaving and I think that the people in this Arthur Lawrence and Barbara Streisand and Redford and Stark and Sidney Pollack they were smart people and they were talented. And even when they disagreed, I could see where they were both coming from. Sure. The only one that I really had problems with was Arthur Lawrence because he lied so much mm. and he lied about himself. His real name was Arthur Levine and right. he lied about that. And for someone whose first play was about anti-Semitism in the <laughs> army written in 1948, what are you doing lying about your last name? And there were, you know, zillions of Jewish people who had to change their name for their career and they owned up to it. You know, oh, big deal. You know, Lauren Bacall or whatever, you know, it's just it, Cary Grant. I mean, but they owned up to it. They, but Arthur Lawrence, you know, went around lying about it. And I think he also lied about the blacklist. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So he was very, he was a very complicated, he was a very interesting person. I suppose that was probably the most fun was writing about him, actually. And then I thought there was a, a kind of privilegedness about Redford that I think there was a vanity there that, you know, he, on one hand is I'm the intellectual director actor, but on another hand, it's like, you know, I'm drop dead good looking. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, because you always hear those stories about, but I think it's like more, it focuses a lot about the women who are like, I want to be seen more than just like a pretty face. Like I want a chance to prove myself and it, you know, and, and so I guess it's kind of like that adds the interesting level to it of, of here you have, well, you know, well, Robert Redford. Robert Redford never pulled an Elizabeth Taylor in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. He never, he never uglified himself in any way whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe I don't know because then we can like go into the, um, you know, the challenges and the differences in in women landing roles versus men landing roles and the type of roles they get and like. But there's just like so there's like a whole there's like decades of of information that I just like I don't have because I'm just I I haven't studied film but you know just from now a lot of the narr- and and you know with 
the way the internet is and everything today, it's easy to kind of, it's like with the information bias, right? It's, it's easy to find things that you're looking for and to kind of like dismiss things that you're not, that really aren't supporting your, like your argument. So I, I, yeah, I just think that's so interesting and so funny with Robert Redford. Cause like, yeah, you are a heartthrob. And so unfortunately, like you are going to be looked at a certain way and, you know, it's like, you kind of just have to get to suck it up or I don't know, but he tried. <laughs> he tried well, he tried. I was very surprised he even gave me an, an interview because he hadn't talked about the movie very much. And when he did a big playboy interview for the release of the movie and the sting, he talked about the sting, but he didn't talk about the way we were. <laughs> that's hilarious. Oh, that's so funny. And so, and this was when you interviewed him, you said so you were trying yeah. to talk to him about both and he just didn't, was he just like being really elusive or like avoiding d- redirecting with yeah, answers? Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh, to be a fly on the wall at some of your interviews. That's so funny. So just one last question before we wrap up here. So what advice for like someone who's, who's trying to do the similar thing, either like a theater critic or um, what was the profession you had before you were a theater critic? You said you were like I was a, an entertainment editor. Yes. Yes. Anybody mm-hmm. who's trying to get into that line of work, like aspiring authors for that line of work, that industry, or even like someone who's, who's maybe wanting to write, a biography or, or, you know, like the behind the scenes type genre. Um, what kind of advice would you have for someone who's, who wants to get into that? Well, I think to get into like a, a editor at a magazine, I would try to do as much freelancing as I could. And then you develop a relationship with an editor at a website or whatever and you know hopefully say hey look i'd like to work for your website or your publication you know if anything opens up let me know but i think you really you know the the quickest way to do that is to uh start a freelance career and that is particularly for young people you know when you get older you don't kind of have your ear to the ground anymore and people are always interested in what young people are doing what their fashion is what their music is what they're doing sexually whatever and so all of that is something that editors are always looking for so that's what i would say when it comes to writing books I wrote a book called The Man Who Invented Rock Hudson, which was about this crazy uh, agent named Henry Wilson. And the book was rejected all over town because no one was interested in Henry Wilson. And then that's the most successful book I ever did because it was a good story. I just thought, you know, this is a good story. It was about an agent who was gay who came up with all the major matinee beefcake stars of the 40s and 50s, Rock Hudson, Tap Under, Troy Donahue, Rory Keller. So here was this gay man living in the most homophobic town in the United States, Hollywood, and he was living out his sexual fantasy, and America didn't know it. And I thought, you know, this is a good story, even though no one's heard about this guy, Henry Wilson. And then Ryan Murphy took it and turned it into a Netflix series called Hollywood (laughs) (laughs) with Jim Parsons in the role. So anyway, that's the book I 
I'm most known for. And it was a good story. It was just a good story. And that's what I have to say, even with the way they were. It's a good story. I just thought, you know, here's this Arthur Lawrence is writing about his relationship with another man and he turned it into a movie. And, you know, and then you've got Streisand and Redford being so different and you had all of these people fighting and uh, Sidney Pollack hating Ray Stark and, you know, Arthur Lawrence hating Robert Redford and lying about it. <laughs> And I just thought this is a good story. It does. I think like after sitting down to talk with you about it, I appreciate it a bit more because I was, you know, and I'll, I'll be honest with you because I am and I will I will attribute it to the fact that I'm just not, you know, in in tune with like the cinematic history of, of all things. And mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> and because I'm just like I'm a couple generations behind on on who you know, the audiences that knew about this going on. And, but, and yeah, for a while, it took me a while to like, kind of like get in the headspace. And, and like, when I finished it, I was like, Oh, that was some like juicy drama, you know? <laughs> and then like, while I was reading it, I was like looking at the clips and stuff and digging a little bit deeper. But now I'm like, now that after speech, just speaking to you about it and learning more about it, I like, totally, I appreciate it a little bit more. And I think that's like, it's like so fascinating because there are so many, how many untold stories are there, you know? about just about almost anything like even if it's not it, about cer- about similar like film processes like with the production mm-hmm. and editing and stuff like that some some things we hear about some things we will never hear about things like that um so no i i you know i appreciate it it was just i feel like we could go down like the rabbit hole i feel like if i actually watched the movie i would have a better like better idea of certain things but i mean obviously i got the gist of it just from reading your book so well well watch the movie with your husband okay <laughs> i i want you to report back i will <laughs> absolutely yeah our next movie night <laughs> oh my god i that that's just going to be at her. I, I, cause I'm, I would be interested to see what he thinks about it too. Cause he's very much into like, you know, like the very like action pack, like Marvel movies, transformers. There are some other movies that will, you know, like, Oh, he'll hate, he'll hate the way we were. <laughs> yeah, maybe. But I, I just, I'll, I'll be, then I'll be like, well, why, what didn't you like? Yeah. Well, he also also the type of person who, um, he, he doesn't like abstract endings. Like, I don't know if abstract is a word, but like open, like where it's like up to the viewer to kind of like speculate what he, he, I think he just likes like, like the closure. So I think, I think more so it's like the, I think the way we were has a pretty good, good closure. And it was interesting because Redford never wanted to do a sequel, but Redford never did a sequel in his entire career as a director or as an actor. There are no sequels. But Streisand to this day, she says, I regret we didn't make the sequel. But I read some of the scripts for the sequels and they were just awful. <laughs> they, they, they updated the, the sequel was set at the Democratic Convention in 1968. Oh. And Hubble oh, is God. now a newscaster and he meets his daughter and his daughter convinces him to be a political liberal. Mm. It's not <sighs> good. yeah it would seem like definitely i don't know there'd be like a lot going on there that could be just as messy very easily and well there was one thing that pollock told me he said when i interviewed him in 1995 because in the 80s there was a law to talk about a sequel and he told me in 1995 well a sequel wouldn't work 
because when characters are young, we forgive them their mistakes. But mm. when people are older, they're supposed to have learned from their mistakes. So you're going to have Katie and Hubble get back together again, only to break up again. Uh, so, but anyway, I think Streisand wanted them to get together. So then she's going to have to throw aside her Jewish husband. <laughs> that would have made her really sympathetic. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah, I think oh, the movie with her ending up with David X. Cohen, you realize that she made a mistake with Hubble. She loved Hubble, but she made a mistake. You don't marry everyone you fall in love with. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, real quick. Is there anything that you're working on right now that you want to talk no. about? No, no I'm not working on anything. <laughs> <laughs> I just review. You can read my reviews on, on therap.com. The Rap. W-R-A-P. Got it. Got it. Okay. okay. And then you got like social media and stuff like that? Yeah. There's a Robert Hoffler author and Robert Hoffler Facebook. Okay. Okay. Cool, cool. But if you don't do go to the rap.com, you can find like how to reach you and, and all yeah. that stuff. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> perfect. All, all right, my Robert. Theater reviews come up there. Oh, perfect. Yeah. I'll definitely check them out. I'd be, you know, I'd be curious to, to see your thoughts just because, yeah, like I, my husband and I have our movie nights. So that's why I was like, Oh, that'll be our next movie night. We'll have to check it out and see like, okay. how that goes. I would just be interested to see his, re- his reaction to it. <laughs> um, okay. The way they were, how epic battles and bruised egos brought a classic Hollywood love story to the screen. Robert Hoffler, thank you so much once again. This was, um, so it was entertaining and educational. Yeah. <laughs> For me, I, I appreciate your patience and my lack of familiarity with okay. the subject matter. No problem. <laughs> Take care. And there you go. That was Robert Hoffler talking about the way they were. That book is available now. Um, in the show notes, you can find links to buy his book, to follow him on uh, his website and also his um, theater reviews on therap.com. Um, please rate, review, subscribe us, um, follow the Nerd Cantina and Cantina Book Club on Twitter and Instagram. Check out my book reviews on thenerdcantina.com. And, oh, you know, keep checking back if you're looking for your next read or if you want to dig a little bit deeper and get to know the author's processes and the story behind some of these um, awesome books. And as always, thank you guys so much for listening.